We are in chapter 9. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter as we are always want to do on Sunday. We want to spend time reading Scripture. If all that we, if that's all we ever accomplished, it would be more than enough. Although we do want to teach from God's Word, reading from Scripture is and should be a highlight for you. Let's look at chapter 9 and verse 1. And we'll begin there. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know how he who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So, for the second time, They called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them. Oh, I love this part. 
I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be one of his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Father, how rich is your word. How rich are your words now being spoken to us. How profound are your words now being spoken to us. Lord, help our church, help this church this morning to hear you speaking, to have ears to hear and hearts to receive. And Lord, may eyes be open this morning to who you are and how great you are. Lord, I pray for Grace Church, that they would be refreshed and encouraged and have their faith built as they read about your Son. Lord, help me please in my weaknesses, my inadequacies to speak clearly what you want to say this morning. Now, please, By your spirit, please glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been eight months since we began our study in John, and with so many stories and so many events and miraculous encounters, it can be hard to remember how they all connect. In 1976, I was... 21 years old, living in a small town in North Carolina, working, and as a 21-year-old who was rather poor and doing his job, it was a highlight day when they opened the Golden Corral Steakhouse right near the place that I worked. The great thing about the Golden Corral Steakhouse is that for a 21-year-old, you can walk around and just think, more food. There is buffet food everywhere. 
steak, chicken, desserts beyond measure, occasional salad. There is just food everywhere. And there was no rhyme or reason to eating this food. You just, I just bumped around from place to place, plates filled. I was 21 years old and all I know was more food. Fast forward to 19, or actually 2005, my 25th wedding anniversary. And Marilyn and I, I scheduled a dinner at a very exclusive restaurant in Charlotte, another North Carolina restaurant called the McNinch House, named after the mayor of Charlotte in 1900. And his little house on this little quaint street next to an old church building, a place that only seats maybe 20 people, you make reservations a month in advance, and then they call you and ask you what you want to eat a week before, and they make your menu. You wear no blue jeans, no t-shirts, it's coat and tie. And we go there, and it is a three-and-a-half-hour experience, six-course meal, each portion of the meal, each part of the meal designed to fit what you ate previously before, all fitting together. And we're leaving that place that night after this wedding anniversary celebration, and Marilyn looks at me and says, that's the most exquisite meal I've ever had. Can we go back next year? <laughs> no. <laughs> what did it cost? No, I'm not going to tell you what it cost. Oh, come on, come on, tell me. What. No, I'm not going to tell you what it cost. And so finally she got it out of me, and she goes, that didn't taste very good. <laughs> the McNinch house was exquisite. And I think as we look at God's word and specifically the gospel of John, it, it would be easy to approach scripture from this golden corral buffet, just wonderful scriptures everywhere that can feed us but have no connection, and then looking at John's gospel more as this exquisite meal where every verse, every chapter leading up to this chapter 9 is tied together and meant to fit together so that there's this culmination as we get to Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's where this leads. And, and it, it continues to, to grow. It continues to move forward. And, and the tension heightens page after page. John doesn't just present us with a collection of unrelated events, but with a unified gospel and with one purpose in mind. The one purpose that we have discussed in every message from John's gospel, from John 20, 31, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by <clears throat> believing you might find life in His name. That is the purpose 
of John's gospel. It is why John wrote his gospel. It is why these stories appear. It is why John 9 appears. It is here that this man who is born blind is healed because John has written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in his name. Now, don't just limit that statement to those who you think don't know Christ. That statement is for you as a believer today. The gospel is alive as the, today for you as a believer as it was when you were not a believer. And as John pens these words that you might believe he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you might find life in his name by believing, are there not days where you wonder, where is God? Are there not days where you struggle with unbelief? Are there not days where you wonder what it's all about? And John has written these things that you may believe that Jesus is your Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in his name. In John 9, as we get to this story all along the way, Jesus at preordained moments in, his, in John's gospel, performs miracles that John appropriately calls signs. Signs that point the way to God. Signs in John's gospel are always meant to teach spiritual truths. That's why these signs appear. And in John 9, he vividly demonstrates, Jesus vividly demonstrates what John has been saying since chapter 1, about who Jesus is. In chapter 1, verse 4, John opens up with an understanding of, of who this Word became flesh is. In the beginning, he writes in verse 1 of John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then he says this. This is a preamble to John 9. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. That's the blind man's experience in John 9. He doesn't stop. In verse 9, John goes on of chapter 1, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. In chapter 3, he continues on in verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works 
should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And in 8.12, as Devin spoke a few weeks ago, Jesus stands up and declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. For eight chapters, John has been recording this growing conflict. This growing conflict between the Jews and Jesus. And it's highlighted in this statement in in verse 12 of chapter 8, I am the light of the world. This statement is made at a time of most of just powerful imagery. As Jesus stands, he has been in Jerusalem for a week. The temple of the, the Feast of Booze have been taking place in the temple. It is a yearly feast that is the highlight feast celebration of, of enjoyment for the people of God, the Israelites, because they're celebrating God's provision during Israel's time in the desert. God's provision of water from the rock. God's provision of a pillar of fire leading them along the way. And this celebration has numerous powerful imageries. We talked about Jesus in chapter 7 as, as this time of, of celebration is going forth. And each day, one of the priests would go to the pool of Siloam and take a pitcher of water and carry it to the temple and pour it out, talking about the salvation of God, re- reminiscing over God's provision of water. And Jesus stands up and says, I am the river of life. With this in the backdrop. And now in, in chapter 9, he is, there's this miracle taste taking place. And it is coming at the end of the Feast of Booths. As he passed by, we see in, in verse 1 of chapter 9. But look back in chapter 8. Chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple. He is declaring in verse 12 that he is the light of the world and he is having this conversation, this time of of opposition from the Jewish leaders. And at the end of chapter 8, things are, he has declared himself to be God and the Jews are so incensed, they pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The festival is over. But each night of the festival, there would be these four torches, these huge two-story torches that would be lit in commemoration and celebration of God leading the Israelites through the desert. And on this last, on the last night of the festival, the torches are extinguished. And it is In this backdrop that Jesus is saying he is the light of the world. And now, as he leaves the temple, as he moves away from the opposition, the final night has taken place. The torches are extinguished. Darkness has descended upon Jerusalem. And we these smoldering torches in the background. Jesus having declared he is the light of the world, comes to a man outside the temple. 
as he passed by in verse 1, he saw a man born blind from birth. Now Kent Hughes in his commentary says that these two chapters are meant to be read together as Christ now leaves the temple. It's a conscious portrayal of what happens when light goes into the world. The light of the world is now going into the world. And in, this is the sixth of the seven miraculous signs that John records in his gospel. And remember, they're written, these signs are recorded so that you would believe. But what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us that Jesus leaves the temple, encounters this blind man, is the light of the world, and now heals this man? What does John tell us this means for us? I think there are a number of things. And the one thing that I want to focus in on this morning is that we must continue God's work of bringing gospel light into the opposing darkness so that those who are blind may see. We must continue God's work of bringing gospel light into the opposing darkness so that those who are blind may see. John tells us in verse 4, this is the very reason that Jesus came. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. They pass by and they see a blind man from birth. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And that, is, that was the, the preeminent thought of the day for, for the Jewish leaders and the disciples as well, was that if you had an illness, it was simply because you were a sinner. If you were blessed, you were righteous. And if you were ill, if you were blind, if you were sick, or suffering, you are simply a sinner. And Jesus just decisively destroys that thought. He said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what does John want us to see in this passage? What does he want us to see about Jesus so that we can continue his work? We can do the works that God has called us to do, that we can be the church that God has called us to be. I, three things that I think God wants us to see in this passage that John has written. And number one is his sovereign plan to save sinners. John wants us to see his sovereign plan to save sinners. He wants us to see about Jesus, his sovereign power to save sinners. And he, thirdly, he wants us to see his saving grace to sinners. His sovereign plan to save sinners. It's why he sees the blind man as he passed by. The, this event with the man born blind was no accident. 
I mean, Jesus tells us this man was born blind not because he was a sinner or not because his parents were sinners, simply because the works of God need to be displayed. The sovereign plan of God needs to be revealed. Earlier in John 4.4, we're reading about the story as Jesus is going through Samaria and he encounters the woman at the well and this entire town. Well, in 4.4, Jesus said, we must go through Samaria. That wasn't always the way that Jews traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem back to Galilee. Oftentimes, Jews skirted Samaria because it was considered impure. But Jesus in 4.4 says, we must go through Samaria. We must go through because there is a woman at a well and there is a town that needs to hear the truth. God's sovereign plan to save sinners is never random. Our salvation didn't just happen because we happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right frame of mind. No. No, it was because God planned our moment of conversion as he planned in his sovereign plan to encounter this man born blind. This was the very reason Jesus was sent, as he says, to do the works of God. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. That's a whole message in itself. It being day and night coming when no one can work. Now, Jesus is referring to the time from his crucifixion to Pentecost when the disciples have not yet received the Spirit and it is considered dark. And when Jesus talks about, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world, it's not as though when Jesus was crucified and ascended to heaven, the light, he stopped being the light of the world. He's still the light of the world. Now he's being the light of the world through his church. God's sovereign plan to save sinners is never random. Ephesians 1.4 tells us, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, God's plan for you was in place. Before the foundation of the world, Paul writes, Jesus had planned to pass by you. Before the foundation of the world, Paul writes, Jesus had planned to open your eyes. Because this story isn't just about a man born blind. It is a story about humanity's spiritual blindness. And this sign points to that spiritual blindness. God has worked throughout history and he is continuing to work today. Why does Grace Church exist? Why does Grace Church exist? It exists to do the work of God. It exists to do the very things that Jesus did. And Jesus is still working. He is still the light of the world. He is still entering into the darkest places and exposing sin by his light. And he's doing it through you and me. He is doing it through his church. He is exposing the darkness that is in the world. 
1989, when Marilyn I lived in Atlanta, we got this bargain on this house for a week's stay in Myrtle Beach. Oh, it was a bargain. It was a bargain house filled with what the South Carolinians call palmetto bugs. In the north, they call them roaches. <laughs> and in the south, palmetto bugs are probably twice the size of northern roaches. Now, here's the deal, was that at the house at night, you couldn't see the roaches in the dark. You could hear them scurrying across the floor. But the moment you turn the light on, boom, they would disappear, as roaches are wont to do. The light of the gospel does the same thing. (laughs) It exposes more than palmetto bugs. The light of the gospel always exposes the worst in people. Like a light does when you do turn it on and roaches scatter. And because of this, Jesus faced fierce opposition. The end of chapter 8 and verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at Jesus to kill him. Because he claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed to be God. He said, I am the light of the world. And at the end of chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. The very words that Moses heard from God when he asked God, who should I say sent me when I go back to the Israelites? And God says to Moses, tell them, I am sent you. For Jesus to even utter those words would be considered blasphemy. Blasphemy. And so there is fierce opposition. And in nine chapter, in verse 13 through 34, we see that opposition. Actually, Jesus, he puts the mud on the blind man's eyes. Verse 6, having said these things, he spat on the ground, made the mud with saliva, And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, Jesus is totally off the scene. And for many, until the end of this chapter, he's he's in the background. Now, in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg no he is it is he no it isn't he I I am the man I mean I just you just see this poor guy he's gone to this pool he's had to walk to the pool with mud on his eyes and he can't see yet so he's probably still feeling his way to get to the pool and he finally gets there he washes and and he goes back he's seeing now imagine his experience Imagine he's sitting, he's sitting there as Jesus passes by. Now, no surprise that he would know about Jesus. He, Jesus had been in Jerusalem numerous times. He'd been in there all week. A lot of stuff was happening with Jesus. And so this, his name would be known to this man. And when, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to his disciples, with the blind man there, who's probably on the ground just begging, and he says, I am the light of the world. Understand this. This blind man, who's been blind from birth, 
has no idea what the word light means. He's never seen it. How do you describe light to someone who has never seen it? Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, would have little meaning to this man. And imagine the strange experience of Jesus kneeling down, humbly in the dirt, the dirt he created, and making mud, putting it on this man's eyes, and then gently saying to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, he's encountering the Lord. So there is something there that's clicking, something that's connecting. But it must have been strange walking to the pool with mud on his eyes. It must have been strange to wash in the pool of Siloam, the very pool where water had been poured out by the priests, the very pool that means scent, representing Jesus having been sent to the world, and now this man being sent to the pool. And he washes and he sees. And here we see in verse 8 that he obviously goes back to his neighbors because his neighbors see him. Now, again, I, as I'm trying to think this through, I'm thinking, okay, the only way he ever got back to his home as a blind man was to feel his way there. So how did he get home that first time? Seeing. Did he just kind of pretend to be blind so he could figure out his way home? How, how did he do it? I'm sure the sights and the sounds. But, but think about the, the experience this man is going through. And then the opposition comes. His neighbors take him to the, the Pharisees. They brought him to the Pharisees in verse 13. And the man who'd been born blind, it was, it was a Sabbath day. And so they're not thinking about what a miracle. What an amazing thing that's happened. We, we know this guy. The neighbors know this guy. The people who used to watch him beg know this guy. And now he's in front of the Pharisees and they want to hear what happened on the Sabbath. What, what's going on? And they begin to question this man. Now, look at verse 15. Verse 13 says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Verse 15, So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. Obviously, they had already asked him at least once, so this is the second time they're asking him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. <laughs> Could you imagine being a Pharisee? He put mud on your eyes. Now, here's why they're upset with him on the Sabbath. They're upset with him on the Sabbath. Because on the Sabbath, not based on Scripture, but based on oral tradition and, and, and the, the Pharisees' man-made laws, you weren't allowed to knead bread. And so Jesus making the mud and kneading it to put the mud on the man's eyes was a violation of the Sabbath. That's how legalistic these men were. That's how blind these men are. That is what John wants you to see. 
This man had mud on his eyes. He was blind and he saw more than these Pharisees ever could see. This opposition just continues to grow. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? (laughs) Since he's opened your eyes. Now look at the progression. The blind man, he goes, he's a prophet. Just a few verses before he was a man who just put mud on my eyes. And now he's a prophet. They call Jesus a sinner. They call the blind man a sinner in verse 34. They call a blind man a liar in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight. Three times they asked him. And they didn't believe him. They attack and threaten his parents in verses 18 through 23. And they throw the man out of the temple in verse 34. That is opposition to the sovereign plan of God. But in Matthew 5.14, Jesus tells us something. He says that you are the light of the world. The church is not here to be a friend of the world, but to be the light that exposes the darkness of the world so that many would escape the wrath and judgment of God. We're called to do the works of God because they're anchored in the most unshakable truth, the sovereignty of God. God's sovereign plan to save sinners. I, I, know, I know it can be hard at times in the midst of fierce opposition as you're trying to share the gospel or just be a Christian among family and friends and co-workers among this fierce opposition to trust God's sovereign plan and to believe that the gospel actually will bring about the blind seeing. But God, God's sovereign plan always comes to pass. His sovereign plan to save sinners always works. It never fails. J.I. Packer said this, He said, were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. Oh, how true. But the sovereign plan of God is not ineffective. Today, Jesus is still passing by those in darkness. He is still opening blind eyes. He is still doing miracles, but he's doing it through his church. And we cannot be fearful of the opposition, but simply trust in his sovereign plan and his saving grace. That is the first thing. God, what we see here is his sovereign plan to save sinners. Secondly, we see his sovereign power to save sinners. Now, Jesus, in verse Chapter, uh, chapter 20 of, of, of John's gospel in verse 30 and 31. It is a 
scripture that I have repeated again and again and again as the benchmark, as the foundation, as the anchor of this gospel. And every story we read has its connection back to this passage. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If there's one scripture memory verse we're going to have this year, in 2015, it's going to be John 20, 31. We're going to know. And when you read John's gospel in the future, whether it's six months from now or six years from now, I pray, I trust that when you read this, echoing in the background will be this verse. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. You know, in John 2, Jesus turns water into wine. In John 4, he heals the official sons with just a word. In John 6, he feeds the 5,000 and then he walks on water. And in John 7, he heals the lame man. And as Jesus obeys his father and does the work he's been called to do, what we see is God's power again and again displayed in Jesus. God's power displayed in Jesus to bring about faith in who he is. These signs have been <laughs> these signs have been written about that people would come to faith in Christ. Jesus' miracles though come with a cost. Even as he heals the blind man, there's more fierce opposition. The simple act of the making of the mud. Again, the irony that John portrays here, the Jew, that the Jews are the ones that are really blind. D.A. Carson said this about this wonderful power of God and this miracle. It's not just a miracle. It's a sign. The work of the Father mediated through the sent one to shed light on those who live in darkness. Jesus has just declared that he is the light of the world. Now he proceeds to illustrate the point by giving light to the man born blind. He is thereby obeying the one who sent him while many around him are shutting out the light. The physical healing of this blind man is prominent because it's a sign that points to an even more dramatic healing, spiritual healing. That's what the power of God does. Its, its power is meant to point to Spiritual healing. Look at verse 38. Jesus encounters the blind man again who is now no longer blind. And he says in verse 37, You have seen him and it is I who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believed. And he worshipped him. The Jews miss everything this sign and the previous signs have revealed about God. And the deeper we get into this story, the more we see how God's power not only gives sight to this man, but reveals the darkness of those around him. The power of God comes that the works of God may flourish 
and that the light of God may reveal what is dark. The opposition just continues. It's interesting, this man who is born blind, he's outside the temple begging. It doesn't appear he's an educated man, but it's what, what John wants us to see here, what I so desperately want you to see here is his blindness is not just physically gone. His blindness is now spiritually gone. He's able to contend with the Pharisees. These are learned men. And this blind man, because of God's power, schools these blind men. Look, look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. Now, they're not wanting to glorify God. It's similar to when Joshua was looking for the person who had taken the spoils from Ai and hid them. And, and it turns out to be Achan. And so basically God has, has allowed Israel to be defeated because they kept the spoils. Somebody disobeyed the command of God. And so as, as Joshua confronts Achan, he says basically, you know, give glory to God. In other words, own up to what you've done. That, that's what the, the Pharisees are saying here. They're not, they're not telling this blind man, oh, let's worship God together. That is not what they're thinking. They're saying, give glory to God. And then they say this, we know, oh, how arrogant. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, I think these for me are the best words of this chapter. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? That is, that is not a, an innocent question. Do you want to become his disciples? No, no. That is a dig on these guys. And they, they just... They just get so angry. And they reviled him, saying, they reviled this man, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They don't know where Jesus comes from. Throughout John, they've been calling him this idiot from Nazareth. They've known all along. He's told them, I come from God. They just don't hear. They're as deaf as they are blind. You are his disciple. True. Look at the progression. He was, this, this, this blind man first said, well, this man put him out of my eyes. Then he's a prophet. Now he's a disciple. Now he's considered a disciple. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. Now, here's, here's what's so ironic about that comment. This is an amazing thing. He's just been healed of being blind from birth. You want to talk about a miracle? And he's saying, let me tell you what's really amazing here. You don't know where he comes from. <laughs> and yet he opened my eyes. And then, and then this is as sarcastic as it gets. We know. I mean, 
twice before, we know this man is a sinner. We know that God has spoken to Moses. And now this blind man goes, we know. <laughs> Let me tell you what we know. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. <laughs> but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And then he says this incredible statement. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Oh, what the power of God does. His sovereign plan saves sinners. His sovereign power saves sinners. This man has become a disciple. And thirdly, his saving grace saves sinners. Verse 38 is the pinnacle of this chapter for this man. Lord, I believed and he worshiped him. Now that word worship literally means prostrate, to fall on the ground. He just didn't go, wow, you're God. It was, it was a revelation. It was a moment where this man had come to faith in Christ. This, this wonderful story culminates here in verse 1. He can't see who Jesus is. He can only hear his voice. In verse 5, he has no category for the word light. In verse 7, this, this man sticks mud on his eyes and tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam. In verse 7, he goes and he has this incredible experience. In verse 13, he has no idea who Jesus is. He just said, he's a man who put mud on my eyes. That's all he is. And in verse, in verse 17, he then, well, I, maybe he's a prophet. And it's growing. In, in verse 25, he is powerful that he can heal the blind. I was once blind and now I see. And in verse 27, he's a disciple. In verse 31, he comes from God. If anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. And then verse 38 the saving grace of God. The work he came to do was complete. The mercy and love and power of God are on full display for all who read this story. On full display. Opposition, unbelief, accusation, persecution, reviling, being thrown out of the synagogue, even the threats of serious consequences, even the prospect of death does not deter the sovereign plan of God and the sovereign power of God and the saving grace of God. Jesus still heals those who are blind. He still heals and saves those who need a savior. So what is our takeaway today? Well, I think the first thing would be, number one application is this, see yourself in the blind man. See yourself in the blind man. Blind, begging, and hopeless without God. That was every one of us. Jesus did many powerful works before he did the greatest work of all. A work that was necessary because our story is the same as the blind man's story. Our blindness, our spiritual blindness, is the same as the man's spiritual blindness. The sins we committed in darkness the sin of our opposition to God, the sin of our rejection of God, the sin of our unbelief, all need God's 
forgiveness. And the greatest work that Jesus did was, was not healing a blind man. The greatest work was submitting himself to the purpose and sovereign plan of God to die on a cross for our sins, to be crucified, to suffer and die so that the penalty of our sins would be thrust upon him, that the ransom that we owed, the debt we owed God would be fully paid by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and would be perfected and we would be perfected in Christ and that we would see that this was all right and good because he rose from the dead. Oh yeah, we must see ourselves in the blind man. We must recognize ourselves in the blind man. All you have to do is think back. Think back to who you were and what you were like prior to coming to faith in Christ and you will see yourself in the blind man. Secondly, I want to encourage you to seek to find where Jesus is at work in someone else's life. Seek to find where Jesus is at work in someone else's life. I'm thinking primarily of unbelievers here, but I also want you to think about seeing Christ at work in the lives of those around you in this church because God is always at work. Thirdly, don't let the darkness scare you. It didn't scare this blind man. And when I'm talking about the darkness, I'm not talking about the physical darkness. I'm talking about the darkness of the opposition we face because we're believers in Jesus Christ. 30 years ago, I would have never imagined the things today that that would be said about Christians today that are being said. 30 years ago, Christians had some level of respect in our society. And today, Christians are ridiculed and mocked and called bigots and are considered people who don't deserve a hearing. We are facing more fierce opposition than we've ever faced, but we can't let it scare us. This blind man who was uneducated boldly faced the darkest opposition because of the hatred these men had for Christ. He was blind and now he sees and he boldly confronted these men. Don't let the darkness scare you. And then finally, number four, don't pass by. Don't pass by. We are the light of the world. We are to lead people out of darkness into light. Grace Church has no higher calling, no greater responsibility, no more important task than this. It's why we exist. Father, I pray as the disciples prayed in Acts that you would give them boldness, I pray that you would give Grace Church boldness not to be scared, not to be afraid, not 
to be intimidated by fierce opposition, but to be the light of the world, to boldly proclaim the truth, to stand in the face of opposition, and to love others for Christ. Lord, may we share the gospel with complete confidence in your sovereign plan and your sovereign power and your saving grace. In Jesus' name, amen.